listening to a podcast by the leadership ministry team at Texas Methodist Foundation. TMF's leadership ministry connects diverse, high-capacity leaders in conversations and environments that create a network of courage, learning, and innovation in order to help the church lean into its God-appointed mission. For more information, visit tmf-fdn.org. There have been more than a few seasons of drought on our family farm in South Texas over the past century. Most of the time, the cattle drink from the cistern, but when there is such a drought, the cistern runs dry quickly. Reservoirs, known more commonly as tanks in South Texas, are a saving grace for every creature in times of drought. When a normal water supply is not adequate, are available, a reservoir makes up the difference. In our area, the deer, coyotes, birds, frogs, turtles who live in or near these reservoirs testify to their continuity and generosity through the years. These tanks or reservoirs expand the resilience of the land to sustain life until a new normal reveals itself. This podcast is about resilience in a season when ordinary sources of spiritual nourishment are not adequate to the uncertainty and loss so many people are experiencing. For people of faith to thrive in such a time and continue to build toward the world that God imagines, I believe that we will need to drink deeply from reservoirs of the Spirit, particularly the dimensions of hope, purpose, and courage. Welcome to Reservoirs of Resilience. I'm Lisa Greenwood, Vice President of Leadership Ministry at TMF. You just heard Bishop Janice Huey reading from her recent publication entitled Reservoirs of Resilience, which inspired this podcast. Thanks to all of you who are joining us for our third episode of our six-episode series. To remind you of our format, we'll hear first from Bishop Huey, who will share an excerpt from her writing on resilience. Then we'll dig deeper into the topic with our guests and end the episode with our key takeaways from the conversation. Our topic for this episode is the Reservoir of Purpose, and our guests are Dory Baker and Stephen Lewis, co-authors with Matthew Wesley Williams of Another Way, Living and Leading Change on Purpose, published in 2020. Dory and Stephen are truly experts in this new way of leadership for the 21st century. And what you will hear in the interview is the invitation and challenge for leaders to see leadership as a communal practice, to engage in deep listening and in the work of discernment that requires both risk and courage. As their Another Way Manifesto puts it, and I love this, there is a future that mourns if you and I do not step into our purpose. I'm so grateful to be able to share this episode with you. But first, to introduce our topic today, let's listen to an excerpt from Bishop Huey's writing on the Reservoir of Purpose. Everyone wants their life to matter, to make a difference in the world. For disciples of Jesus, that difference is found in the prayer we pray every day. 
God's reign on earth as it is in heaven. How that purpose is embodied is the work of a lifetime, a calling. It is also the work of a congregation and the larger church. The Latin root of the word religion is religare, meaning to reconnect. Cultivating an imagination with this widening view of purpose and openness to God's purposes means reconnecting with questions we might not have considered for a long time. In a context in which every organization is now a startup, re-examining our personal shared purpose and the purpose of our congregations and conferences is to drink deeply from a vital reservoir of the spirit. The hardest change is to change ourselves. It is much easier to do what we've always done, even when we are becoming more and more worn out and less and less in love with God and neighbor. As we mature, our calling matures as well. In a time of deep change in our context, drinking from the reservoir of purpose is an opportunity to listen anew to the spirit and perhaps adapt our calling from God. Joining us in our conversation about the Reservoir of Purpose are Dory Baker and Stephen Lewis, co-authors with Matthew Wesley Williams of a book released in 2020 entitled Another Way, Living and Leading Change on Purpose. We love the book and can't wait to get into some of the insights in our conversation today. But first, let me offer a little bit of background on each of our guests. Dory Baker describes herself as a spy for hope. She is passionate about expanding the genre of stories, images, and artifacts for helping people find meaning and discover purpose. She's an educator, activist, and scholar focused on feminist theologies, critical race theory, young adult culture, leadership development, and spiritual practices that sustain activism. Dory is an ordained United Methodist elder in the Virginia Annual Conference. Her first career as a journalist led to seminary and then to ordination and a PhD in religious studies. Dory works as an independent consultant and can be reached at dorybaker.com. And Stephen Lewis is an organizational change strategist and facilitator and a leadership development specialist focused on helping leaders to discover their purpose, passion, and calling in life. He is the president of the Forum for Theological Exploration, also known as FTE, which is a national leadership incubator that cultivates wise, faithful, and courageous leaders who make a difference in the world through the church and the academy. In 2017, he founded... Do Good X, a startup accelerator for diverse, faith-rooted entrepreneurs creating social good ventures. Stephen has earned degrees from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte and Duke University. You can learn more about him and his work at fteleaders.org and dogoodx.org. Welcome, Dory and Stephen. We are so glad you're here. It's great to be with you. It's good to be here. So our topic today is about purpose and how clarity about our purpose can help us to be resilient. Your most recent book is all about purpose and is so relevant for individuals discerning their own purpose or for those who are leading an organization through change. 
So let's start with your take on the connection between purpose and resilience. What comes to mind? When I think about purpose and I think about the things we uncovered as we were writing this book together, what stands out is that we don't do purpose alone. We're so trained in thinking that we do that we have to learn to unthink that. But purpose is communal. When we reframe from the Western norms of individualism, we can welcome a, like a sigh of relief, an enormous sigh of relief, knowing that we are in this together. Another way and the care practices that we write about in the book support us in setting up new default patterns around leadership so that we're reminded that we're in this together. This is countercultural and it requires intentionality, but it builds resilience because I believe we're beautiful, more beautiful, stronger, and more attuned to what the world needs, what our gifts are when we are integrating ourselves into a more communal worldview and when we're participating in shifting the culture to adapt and to adopt to new norms, new norms that, that support us in this work that's together. Yeah, I guess what I, what I would say is that as I was thinking about this, in many ways, purpose is ancestral. But let me tell you what I mean by that, um, particularly with sitting here with the, the good bishop, you know, an annual conference within a national global denomination um, who is stewarding a particular tradition of our sacred text. You know, the God of, Aza- of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob bestowed a promise. And that promise has carried on through generations all the way down to Jesus and those who would then be the disciples um, who were followers of, of uh, the way of Jesus. But the, the writers of texts uh, made these kind of painstaking kind of um, efforts to get the genealogy right, which is to say is that much of what we practice is an ancestral tradition. In other words, it's a promise that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And what I think is that, you know, when God calls, you know, when God called Abraham, it was an invitation to conspire, to bring about a particular vision uh, that God had and what Abraham discerned. And the reality is, is that that purpose continues on even beyond the lifespan of of Abraham Mm. and through generations to come. And so we stand in a long line of those who come before us and those who come after us, hopefully to bring about a new heaven and a new earth. And in that sense, purpose is bigger than me, myself, and I, Mm. and is larger and more expansive than my immediate actions or my deep gladness or my, you know, particular thing that I'm called to at this moment. And the reality is, is that life brings disappointment. Mm -hmm. Life brings loss. Mm -hmm. Life brings no's and closed doors. And if our purpose is too small, where we think it's all about what me and myself and I am called to do at this moment or for the rest of my entire life, and someone says no, mm-hmm. someone closes the door, we have disappointment, then we, we will lose track of why we do what we do. And so resilience in some as- aspects for me is this idea that 
It's our ability to bounce back. And we can only bounce back from these disappointments, from our rejection of people saying no, um, when we recognize that we are not our actions. Mm -hmm. That the totality of who we are cannot be reduced to an episodic moment in our lives. Purpose provides us a greater sense, maybe even ancestral sense of self and destination than a moment or action in time. Purpose puts our actions in perspective and offers a long view beyond a moment, which makes resilience necessary, but also possible. That's so wonderful. I love that. Thank you. I also love in the book how you explore the ways in which our culture has limited our understanding of purpose. And in doing that, it's restricted our ability to hold meaningful conversations that help even individuals clarify their own sense of purpose and call in life. So could you talk a little more, um, both of you, um, about that and about why having widened views, as you call them in the book, is so critical? Yeah, I mean, I think part of because purpose cannot be domesticated mm-hmm. to our own whims of what it is that we want to do. We're an institution that is all about trying to cultivate purpose for the purpose of leadership. Mm-hmm. You're a bishop in the denomination is always thinking about, you know, who feel called and how you move different people to different itinerant kind of positions or whatever. So, and that's all fine and good, but purpose can never be limited solely or restrictively to our leadership needs or our particular um, whims or demands or whatever. And so what I would say is that I've never met anyone as I've traveled across the country and beyond who didn't say, I want my, I don't want, I don't care if my life matters. I don't care if my life has any significance. I haven't met anyone who said that, that, Everybody wants to feel that they have a a particular role to play. But the reality is, it's not just our lives. What is the role of our institutions? What is the role of our environment? What is the role of the kind of natural elements in terms of the way in which we in relationship, not only to each other, but to the earth? What is our relationship to the ways in which we consume and um, and the ways in which we produce? the purpose is not limited just to the kind of uh, human realities of a relational universe. That you know that that you know the earth is the Lord in the fullness thereof. That there is a purpose for the earth. There's a purpose for us as you know as as followers of faith and and the people of God. But there's also a purpose for our institutions, and so we get the opportunity to to conspire and to work with God and the eternal to to discern that, to discern that together. And part of my concern is that the the narrow ways in which we limit purpose, what it ends up doing is creating this type of hierarchy, even as we see perhaps the way people interpret in scripture, that the church is only interested in the mouthpiece of the body, but not the hands, the feet, and other pieces. But the last time I checked, the writer of Ephesus talks about, look, it takes the entire body so that we can be built up in love. 
And so the body needs all of us playing a role. That's why Dory says purpose is communal and not just communal with people, but it's communal in all the things that we're in relationship to. And so I think if we widen the, the, if we widen our aperture, what we can recognize is that more people could participate and play a role and even discern what is God up to in my life? What am I called to do? What is my particular role in relationship to these other things that I'm in, that I'm actually in community with? And I would just add to that, that purpose, one of the primary ways that, that the idea of purpose has been limited is around this idea that it's kind of a trajectory. You, you get on it, you, you go to the best high school you can. You do, like there's this normative idea that you go to college and you get out of college and you get the highest paying job that you, you know, like that there's this one way and that it comes with success instead of brokenness. And in the book, we talk a lot and we really dwell on the fact that purpose is often centered around the heartbreaks of life and the shipwrecks that happen, not on our schedules. And we are in a colossal shipwreck right now, right? (laughs) Some are calling it a dumpster fire. (laughs) Um, But we've all experienced shipwrecks in which we get lost, disoriented, to the point where we doubt the ground beneath our feet and we do not trust our own confidence. And those shaking times are moments of disruption that can be very scary, but they can also be opportunities to extend beyond the boundaries of the meaning-making our home denomination, our home church, our home culture, our home worldview gave us. When we are courageous enough, and that courage usually comes from a community that has our back, when we're courageous enough to go out and explore and bring back and test out new meanings, we can free ourselves to participate in the ongoing change that is reality. Our purpose is responsive to the reality around us. And we see that happening among so many leaders in the midst of this pandemic. paint that picture of um, our reality and all that that means and, you know, sort of the shifting ground and the heartbreak and and just some of the kind of emotional uh, realities of our time and that individuals are facing, it makes the acronym that you use that much more poignant. Mm-hmm. So in your book, the acronym is CARE. And it's central to your work. I mean, it's clear as you read the book. Like, this is not just some catchy thing that you came up with to write a book. This is so foundational to who you are and how you see formation and and how you do facilitation. And and we appreciate that so much here at TMF. And, And so I would love for you all to talk about that a little bit. How did you come up with it? What... I mean, you can just start with what does each letter stand for? Mm-hmm. And then just to say a word about how that relates to purpose and then to resilience. So the C in care starts us off with creating hospitable space. Mm-hmm. And this is about creating the kinds of spaces that, sh- that sh- you know, they should come naturally to us, but we've, we've unlearned. We've unlearned how to sit in a circle and share, share space 
share power, liberate ourselves and each other from the hierarchies that would tell us some of us have voice and others don't, or some voices matter more than others, creating radically hospitable space in which every single person can show up as their most full space. These are the kind of spaces that allow us to be more risky, to be more courageous, to say the thought we're thinking that's thumping inside us, you know, that prophetic moment. Um, Even though it might flop, even though it might not be the word that needs to be spoken right now, these are the kinds of spaces where we can show up for each other in radically hospitable ways. And, And we have, you know, several ways of doing that, several exercises that we lead, that we can lead a group through in person or in remote settings that remind us to connect to our hearts, to begin the way we began today, like stopping to be in silence, to draw from the reservoirs of resilience that are within us. It begins and it returns to creating hospitable space. So then the next one, the next move is ask self-awakening questions and this is you know gets at the at the crux of the matter of these deeper questions of why are you here mm-hmm. no, not listening to this podcast mm-hmm. not what you're doing at the moment but like what is the reason for why you are taking up space in this universe at this moment in time why were you born in this moment in time? So it's it's about these questions that that hoping hopefully awaken us, but also point us toward a particular trajectory, a telos, for the reason that we exist, for the reason we do what we do, for the reason that we care about what we care about, what we love, what we love. And so you can ask all different kinds of self-awakening questions. Sometimes self-awakening questions are questions that awaken us to the iniquities in the inequities within our systems. Mm-hmm. Sometimes self-awakening questions are the kinds of analysis that require us to do a deeper dig of why we have the kind of privilege or why does the privilege within our, within our communities, within our churches, within our denominations, privileges certain groups over another group? And what are the types of cultural commutes that a group has to actually make in order to be present in a space that centers another group? So self-awakening questions can also get into this issue of analysis. The other way that you think about self-awakening questions, they ask deeper questions about history. Mm-hmm. History and how history has shaped and formed our country, how it may shape our particular community, how it has shaped our denominations, how it has shaped and formed me as an individual particularly as an of African descent from the South, born, raised, uh, you know, Baptist, born, Baptist, bred, and ordained <laughs> and that type of thing. And then the same types of question that we ask of your history. But the, the fact of the matter is that it does a kind of unearthing and excavating that moves us to a deeper exploration. It's like what the psalmist says, it's a kind of opening and cracking and breaking us open where deep calleth unto deep. Mm-hmm. And in that sense or whatever, when we ask a good self-awakening question or we're asked a good self-awakening question for someone else, something happens to the to the inquirer 
as well as the inquired in, in the in, in the one who's being the 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 it. Let me say it this way: when we ask these types of self awakening questions, it opens something up in the person who's asking, mm-hmm. and also the person who's being asked. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, it's not only awakening one person, but it's awakening us at the same time, and we then become aware of something new, something maybe even more attentive that spirit is asking us to attend to that we hadn't attended to before. Mm-hmm. So yeah. these kind of questions are, are, are beautiful questions that really get us to uh, deeper levels of real talk mm-hmm. and what really matters. Yeah, Douglas Steer would say, have you ever come up out of such a moment like that and you feel that you've been standing on holy ground? That's what happens in the second care discipline, asking self-awakening questions. I'm going to pause here and just let you know that they don't have to always go in the same order and that we did not invent these, right? Like we, we were using them and we gave names to them, but we've known them by lots of different names throughout human history and they're not ordered steps, but disciplines that we practice over and over and over again towards resilience, towards kind of muscle memory. The more we do them, the more we trust them, the more we know we can rely upon them, the, know we, the more we know we won't die if we, if we really ask those hard questions and still, sit still with them, the more we um, can, can create a pattern and a rhythm of doing these together often. The third, after creating hospitable space and after asking self-awakening questions, we talk about reflecting theologically and critically together. Mm. And reflecting theologically is something I've spent my entire career thinking about, but I, but I came to a new level of understanding it and working with Matthew and Stephen. It's not simply about putting our life story in conversation with God's story and saying, where is God? Because we bring to it the level of analysis around systems of power and privilege, and that changes everything. Every time I sit down and read scripture with Stephen Lewis, he unearths a new understanding of scripture that comes from his deep friendship with a Palestinian folk hero on the underside of empire, born of a teenage mother who was a refugee from power. And when you begin to read scripture through that lens over and over and over again, we can see our own systems of power and privilege, some of those which Stephen just alluded to, coming up and surfacing and asking us to change the way we use that scripture in our life, to to flip it, to, to radically reorient ourselves in relationship to it for the sake of action. So reflecting theologically and critically together is communal, it's critical, and it's for the sake of action. It's not just for the sake of Bible study that we come away from feeling good because we did Bible study. We might not feel good at all. We might be extremely disrupted (laughs) by what we discovered there, and that's a sign that we're doing it right. The last one really is about enacting your next most faithful step. Yeah. in the end, all discernment is about action. You know, it, it really is action for action's sake. Purpose does not unfold unless we make steps, take steps forward in order to 
bring what wants to be born now in us and through us, through our activity, collectively and individually. And the other thing, too, is that we know that resiliency is this idea that even when we get knocked down, we can get up again and keep moving forward. Another way of saying it is that resiliency perhaps is the next most faithful step. (laughs) Even in the midst of heartbreak, even in the midst of doubt, extreme doubt, Maybe even, you know, uh, in some cases it could be whether or not, I don't know if I'm called to this. And so what is your next most faithful step in this moment? And so resiliency, I think, you know, in, in many ways is the manifestation of taking your next most faithful step. So this this idea that, you know, when you're discerned, you don't have to have the whole thing figured out. Like, what am I now called to or what ultimately is my work in the world? Well, that's going to unfold. And the great thing about it is that you don't have to have all that figured out or get stuck because it's so big. I just can't move forward. All you got to do is think about what is the one thing, mm-hmm. not five things, not three things, not two things. What is the one thing that you can do as a result of what you discern? in this community, uh, with this group of people, as God has placed on your heart in order to move forward towards enacting what you have discerned, or thus says the Lord in your own in your own life, or however spirit is moving in you. So, and really enacting your next most faithful step is, is an invitation to participate in God's dream, mm-hmm. God's deep longing for the world. A new heaven, a new earth doesn't doesn't happen. Just because God says it, God invites us. God invites humanity to participate and cook and conspire to make that a reality. And even if empire is never overthrown, we still have an opportunity to make a new heaven and earth right where we are as an alternative space, even in the shadows of empire. Our next most faithful step in some way is the ways in which we are fugitives Hmm. to the status quo. And and even the kind of American imperialism that calls us and wants us to be docile and to be persuaded and to be seduced to assimilation and the normal ways of being in the world. When we as those who are followers of the way of this Palestinian folklore. The Jesus of Palestine versus the Jesus of Constantine calls us to speak truth to power. That calls us to turn the world upside down. That calls us to set that captives free. To do that, we have to discern. So how do I do that as a religious leader or maybe a healthcare worker or an essential worker? How do I do that right where I am? You do that in community and then you figure out I don't have to have the next five years or 10 years, all I got to do is figure out the next moment and then take my next most faithful step. Yeah. And to resilience, I would say we're finding that what Stephen just said, all of that, <laughs> all of that um, 
is can come as such a relief, especially to young leaders who we've said, you know, we've put this on their shoulders. We've um, given them so much of a dystopic inheritance, right? And we've said, go be the change you want to see in the world. (laughs) And that can come with anxiety and it can come with despair, which are some of the opposites of resilience, right? And when I think of anxiety and the need to produce, it feels like it is the arm of capitalism. It is the right arm of capitalism, right? That keeps us going and and refuses to let us take a nap, refuses to let us have Sabbath, refuses to let us enjoy creation in a form of rest that was mandated by, by scripture, right? And the care practices have some of that Sabbath embedded in them. And they are an antidote to anxiety and despair because they build muscle memory that reminds us that a habitus reminds us that there is something larger at us at larger than us at work in the world. And I don't know about you, but knowing that I have purpose gets me out of bed in the morning. Mm. It's the next best thing to coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Knowing that I am connected to something larger than myself. It's not just pretty language. It is the good news of the gospel. Absolutely. As you work with young leaders and they're in the midst of feeling discouraged or facing resistance, like how do you help them center themselves in a sense of of this purpose that you're describing? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is recognizing that they're not the only ones. There's, you know, young people who are not so young, but are kind of, you know, they're they're young people masquerading in in older folks' bodies, right? I mean, like, there's an anxiety that's in the culture. And part of it is just about how do we slow down? Mm -hmm. As as a colleague, a friend of mine says, uh, a guy by the name of Bayo Kumalafi, he says, times are urgent. Let us slow down. Mm-hmm. And it's a paradox, right? Yeah. Like slowing down, slowing the pace in which you're talking. Mm-hmm. To make eye contact as I'm trying to do with, you know, um, the four of you. Mm-hmm. And to say that, look, there is in you something that waits waits, waits, and listens to the sound of the genuine in yourself. And you, it's the you of you. It is God herself, Spirit Sophie. It is it's the Holy Spirit. It is the essence of who you are that waits and listens for the sound of what Jane was authentic within you. And allowing people to have space to just be. And say, look, yes, the world may be raging at the moment, maybe be on fire, but wait mm-hmm. and listen. Mm-hmm. And allow, yeah. allow, allow people to be in that space. Not be in such a hurry. Yes, I'm the bishop and I have a million different things to do and they're vying for my time, but 
How do you sit in the moment and just be? Thurman says it this way. We don't know each other yet because we have, de- we have yet dared to be silent. Mm-hmm. That what do we offer on the altar of our words? But a moment to, be, to just be silent. And out of that silence becomes new language, becomes new ideas that we, then our words give shape to. But if we could just be, then maybe, just maybe, we begin to regulate our own nervous system. Mm-hmm. Not because of me, but people have access to that which is within them that waits and listens for what's genuine within them. And I think if we can create more space for that breathing space where folks can be, mm-hmm. then people will come away, you know, awash anew and say, you know what? I can hold on just a little bit longer, Bishop. I have, I, I've, I've found me a little bit of resilience today just to hold on to the next day and see what the next day will bring. You know, we have so many practices at our disposal as people who've inherited the best of Christianity from all its many trajectories that have been often hidden, often covered over. And in this era of unearthing, we can bring into the light of day and celebrate practices like slowing down, Practices like holy listening, listening as if nothing else in the world mattered, listening to one another as if they are, as if we're gazing upon an icon, expecting the Holy One to be here with us now, pretending if we need to until we're surprised, right? Mm -hmm. We've been doing a lot of guided meditations lately in which we, you know, assure the people who are with us that things are going to be different a couple of decades down the road if we do not fail to step into our purpose, that we fall into this long line and we do our part and there will be fruits from our labor as we align ourselves with the holy and the, you know, the, the, the spirit in the universe that is working good all around us that we can't already see. And, and that we walk them into the future and then we ask them to look around and love themselves there and experience themselves there and hug themselves there and see what they see and know what they know and welcome a few words from their future self. What is it your future self wants you to know? And it's amazing the beautiful insights, the prophetic utterances that people hear when they're slowly and gently brought into this place of care and relaxation, and sort of a calm, non-anxious presence together, where, where intuition and imagination works with spirit to help them not see the whole future, but as Stephen said, just that next thing that can be very soothing and helpful in the face of resistance and discouragement. I'm really struck by the fact that I mean, we paint this picture of the anxiety of the moment and the resistance people are feeling and leaders are feeling and the discouragement and exhaustion. And, and, you know, we're saying, okay, so what do they need to do in the midst of these moments and in the midst of this anxious time? And just even asking the question, it could feel the sort of anxiety rising. 
And you all immediately come back with, slow down, Mm -hmm. listen well, pay attention. Ah, I just, I mean, I just feel eased listening to you. (laughs) So thank you for that leadership and and the way that you do that. So Dorian Stephen, I so appreciate um, the ways in which you connect us with a purpose larger than ourselves, but that's also part of our purpose. I mean, it just touches my heart um, when I, as I listen to you both. And at the same time that I'm up here in these sort of the heavenly heights and the ethereal places, I also know that you use these care practices to lead an organization through organizational change. Can you tell us how you did that and how it helped you to be resilient in the face of challenges? Thank you for the question. Um, You know, so what I'll say is this. When I became president, uh, I I met with the board and I told him, say, you know, there's a familiar passage within scripture where Jesus is talking to the disciples that had just had his conversation with the rich young ruler. And one of the things he says to the disciples, he says, for those who are willing to lose their life for my sake will gain it. For those who are willing to keep their life will lose it. Mm-hmm. And I asked the board, I say, you know, I'm young and I could be incredibly stupid mm-hmm. um, as I'm, you know, moving into this role. But the question is, what aspect of our institutional life are we willing to lose mm. so that we might step boldly, wisely, faithfully, full of hope into what God is now inviting us, calling us to be and become in this moment? That was a self-awakening question. Someone created space for me to even be in the board at, at the board meeting to be able to ask that kind of question. Mm-hmm. And then we spent, you know, the next several years kind of figuring that out as we talked about that in chapter eight. But that's that's where it began. It began with a self-awakening question, which then led to, you know, how do we then create space to actually begin asking this question of of our work and you know, part of what I realize is this, what I would say is this, is that too often I feel, I, I experience institutional leaders who are at the brink of work and life and trying to juggle all that they're doing and acknowledge that they're overextended. One more meeting, one more invitation. How can I say no to this person? How I can say no to this opportunity? How can I do these things when God has called me and blessed me such where and, and people are overextended? And part of it is the reality is that we are competing with machines, mm. but we are not machines. <laughs> We're human. And so part of my, my deep concern is that particularly for pastors, Bishop, is that for those who are so fortunate to get a sabbatical, or a lily sabbatical in, in the larger college institution that we work with, the thing is that sabbaticals are insufficient mm-hmm. because the very institution that you need a sabbatical from right. 
you come back to those institutions that then overextend you and then you need another sabbatical. And part <laughs> and the larger question is, the larger question is, are these institutions designed for our flourishing? Mm-hmm. How do we build 21st century organizations that allows us to do our best work in community with our congregants, mm-hmm. in community with our conference staff, in community with our denominational staff, in community with our global community? Like, how do we build a global community, a global institution that allows us to flourish and thrive and do our best work? To bring about this new heaven and the new earth. And so for us at FTE, at a, at, a, at a micro level, that was what was behind that question. What part of our institutional life are we willing to lose? And so part of that was, you know, the reality was like, look, we're not going to be able to, you know, make budget with the way that we currently work. You know, this is right after the 2008-9 um, right. Great Recession. And, you know, funders are saying, you you know, they're going to have to, we're going to have to sharpen our pencil. We have folks who didn't, you know, complete on their, um, on their pledges. And so part of the question is, how do you continue to go full speed ahead in the work that you currently do? And then also create space Mm -hmm. and figure out what you need to be doing. Because we were going to have to cut our budget by, by, at least by a third. And so what we decided to do was press pause, Hmm. an organizational pause, not so we would not do anything, but so that we could then press pause on the rapid pace of work, what we would currently do to carve out enough space where we could be then asking a different set of questions and to explore that with our staff, explore that with our stakeholders and explore that with a larger community. And so that's what we did. We, we started with a listening tour. And then that listening tour gave way to another set of self-awakening questions. And then we started reflecting together theologically about who has God called us to be? What does it mean to be an organization that's committed to the next generation and committed to the values of diversity and committed to the, to, to the realities that even today that, you know, that we need to be cultivating the kinds of leaders in spite of the economic realities and the possibilities that a church cannot even pay for these young leaders who right. will go get a seminary degree, who's strapped with their undergraduate debt, right. and then be able to come to a place that can't even afford them full time. Mm-hmm. Right. How, how, how do we cultivate a next generation of leaders who need to be more entrepreneurial, who need to think about the ways in which they're bivocational, who need to think about um, alternative ways of the ways in which Christians congregate, or maybe even the alternative uh, delivery system for theological education, because the current system, the economic system and model is upside down. Right. So as we began to ask these kind of questions and where FTE needs to focus, that began to give some clarity in terms of what is our next most faithful step? Mm-hmm. And that was about how do we then write grants and have conversation with our stakeholders. Here's not here, we don't want to do five things, but we want to do these one things, mm-hmm. or we want to do these two things that allows us to start making a shift for the organization. That a one allows us to expand our work beyond Protestant mainline majority. Eighty percent of our students were 
white and male yeah. to now to a space where, you know, at least 45 to 50% of our people are more diverse. Why? Because the diverse body of the church, the diverse body of Christ needs diverse leaders. And so we need to be working with a broader diversity. Mm -hmm. And then we, you know, started thinking about how do we write grants that allows us to work further back in the leadership development pipeline. Why? Because it's not enough to just give people grants who are at seminary level. If we're going to, if the church is going to have the kind of leaders that they need, we need to start early in the pipeline of doing discernment Mm -hmm. with a wider number of young adults. And then, you know, we started asking other kind of questions, but those were our kind of next most faithful step. And that then, you know, led into the kind of uh, organization that we've become now. Now, of course, you know, that's a more sanitized way of thinking. You know, there wasn't always, you know, um, we, we didn't always get it right. We made some mistakes along the way. It was no zero sum game. And we fought against the tyranny of either and or. But we did do something that was other than just doing what we've always done. And that's scary. Right. Requires a lot of, not just courage, but it requires a lot of um, imagination about what's possible. Right. And living into that hope. And how do you be resilient even when you have setbacks? And so that then allowed us as an organization to find us, to find our footing about what it is that we're now called to do. And so, yeah, we... We're, we're at a very different place than where we were a decade ago, where we were five years ago, right. where we were three years ago. Yeah. But part of it is like, how do you put one step in front of the other to take that next most faithful step out of what you discern? And for me, that is what resiliency is, mm-hmm. is the ability to get up and take steps even when you're scared, even when you're fearful, even when you don't know what you supposed to do, even when even the council of bishops are not even sure about where it is that we should be going. Mm -hmm. We still try. We still take, because hope and God's vision for what can be even surpasses the limitations of our human thinking and the frailties of our own limitations. Well, I love as you describe that, and you talk about how it leads to resilience and how the organization was able to make the kind of pivots, innovations leading into the future, you know, all of that, that resilient, that are sort of marks of resilience. I love how all of that is grounded in your purpose. You did listening sessions. You asked, who are we and what are we trying to accomplish? And if we're not helping people flourish, then are we really being true to our purpose. Like, I love that you grounded all of that in a sense of, of calling and identity. And um, so thanks for sharing that story. That was really valuable, really helpful. And I just want to add, I'm sorry, go ahead, Stephen. I was going to say, the thing is the mission doesn't change about who we call to be, right? but the how we accomplish the mission, the strategy can change. Strategy, Strategy should always be responsive to the landscape. Mm. And it shouldn't just always be responsive. It's it sometimes it should also be forecasting <laughs> where we nice. want to go even when we're not ready for it or the landscape hasn't got to that place because we have a vision to be able to see because of our relationship to the eternal. Well, I was just going to add that there's this beautiful symmetry in the care practices 
you know, they can be used by an individual who's looking for their reason to get out of bed this morning. They really can. can. Creating the own interior hospitable space in which one's own self with all her anxieties and cracks and fissures are welcomed. And they can be used, like we pointed out, by pastoral leaders who are nurturing the next generation of people, whether they're leaders or anyone trying to find their purpose and call in the world. And they can be used by organizational leaders who are looking at the larger landscape. Mm-hmm. And, and that symmetry, like, you know, fell in our laps and we, we saw it happening and we practiced it as a staff under Stephen's leadership. And it really is this beautiful thing that does work. And we keep coming back to it again and again, sometimes surprising ourselves, hey, it worked again. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So this has been so rich. I appreciate you all so much doing this. I mean, there is just so much goodness here. Um, Okay, the last thing that we're asking all our guests Mm. to complete these three sentences, um, it's sort of a rapid fire round, right? So you'll just complete the sentences with whatever comes to mind immediately. So are you ready? Mm -hmm. So here's the first. Resilience is? Your next most faithful step in spite of. (laughs) Grace filled and also takes a lot of work. (laughs) Nice. So when I think of resilience, I think of? The men and women who have uh, risked it all to serve God's people. Nature itself composting into new growth. If you want to cultivate resilience. You need to get in touch with Why are you here? For what purpose were you born? And what unanswered question did your foremothers and forefathers wrestle with that now is your burden to carry forward in service to the next generation? Go for a walk in the woods. (laughs) Dory Baker, Stephen Lewis, you all are treasures. Thank you so much for doing this with us and sharing your wisdom and your heart and and just who you are. Thank you, thank you, thank you. As we end this episode on the Reservoir of Purpose, Bishop, what are your reflections, your takeaways from today? Well, there were many. This is a rich conversation. But one of the things that stood out was Stephen's talking about how purpose is ancestral. That is, that it has a past, a present, and a future. It moves generation to generation. I don't think I'd thought about it that way before. Right, right. I love that. And they talked about purpose as communal. And and I, I, I think we tend to think in terms of clarifying our purpose for ourselves, but I love the notion that that purpose is is communal. I like it that it's not just about me. It, it's right. about all of us together. And it it helps us move from this focus on personal preference to um, connecting with a larger community. Yes, yes, so good. So one of the other things that stood out to me is when Dory talked about how we find clarity of purpose through the heartbreak and shipwreck of life. I love that, but it's not on our schedules, right? That when we're going through those shipwreck times that they're scary and and such, but they move us beyond the thinking of um, our current thinking and our current way of life, 
right? That they open up new ways of seeing and new meaning. And, and, you know, I think that's what resilience is about, right? Our ability to see with new eyes and see new possibilities when things are really hard. That relates to those times, and, and, and often they are times of hardship, when, when we ask self-awakening questions or someone mm. asks us a self-awakening question. And in the interchange, both of us, that one who is asked and the one who is asking, we, we both are changed. We're both yeah. transformed. Oh yeah, so good, so good. Thank you, Janice, and and thank you all for listening. We hope this podcast has sparked an idea or a question in you so that you can have a conversation with a friend or with your team. And if you have received some nourishment from listening today, please share with friends and leave us a review. And until next time, may you drink deeply from the reservoirs of hope, purpose, and courage. Reservoirs of Resilience is a production of TMF's Leadership Ministry with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. The beautiful music in our episode is from Billy Crockett. Listen to more Billy's music on YouTube and on billycrockett.com. Make sure to view our show notes and website for more information about all of our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at TMF's Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.